postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church podcast. It's been a really, really nice long break. Uh, since the previous part in our season, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to it, um, man, you really gotta, you really gotta check it out. I sat down with Paul Anthony Turner, and we did a whole season on ministering with the LGBT plus community. So make sure you check that out. If you haven't checked it out yet, because it was absolutely amazing. Uh, and so once we wrapped that season up, I went for a nice break, and um, yeah, now I'm back. Now I'm back, and I'm really excited to get into this new season which is actually titled The Art of Missional Living. And we're going to be looking at missional living from a conceptual and practical perspective. And I think it's going to be really, really, really helpful for you. Uh, now, while I have been on break here, that doesn't mean I haven't been doing anything. For those of you who aren't aware, um, I'm also part of another podcast that has been specifically created to bring the, the gospel uh, into a secular culture into a secular milieu. So that podcast isn't actually designed for church people. It's designed for secular seekers who are wanting to explore some of the tenets of uh, Christianity. Uh, and we're sort of doing it in a language that makes sense to it, to, to, to that demographic. And that podcast is called The Unknown God. And so if you're interested in that, go to uh, www.theunknowngod.com. And you can, yeah, you can find everything there. You can find the seasons, interviews, everything that we've been doing uh, on The Unknown God. I've also been working on the R3 Network, which is a discipleship model uh, of, of, of microchurch model for um, for Adventists who are looking to, to do mission in a post-church society, uh, post-Christian uh, missiology or, or mission, whatever you want to call it. And so the R3 network is basically a discipleship pathway that uh, I've been working on with an amazing team here in Perth uh, over the last year. And we've managed to, uh, yeah, put some things down. Um, what's the best way to put it? Uh, we've managed to, to, to solidify a few key themes in that conversation. And we put together a training school. So basically what the R3 network is, if you're planting a church or if you're part of a small group, or if you're part of an established church and you want to know like what is the best way to reach emerging secular seekers, how can we engage them in a more meaningful and redemptive way that's contextualized to, to this culture and to the needs and, and you know the sort of the rhythms of this particular demographic, that's what the R3 network is all about. It's most specifically designed for church plants because it's significantly easier to implement the, the pathway if you're a church plant. So if you're an established church, you got to change so much to actually make this effective in your in your established church. Uh, but if you are a church plant, then it's significantly easier to implement it. But anyways, um, the Arthur Network is online. 
It hasn't gone public yet because uh, we're still got to update a few things on the website, but the online school is completely ready to go. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I would love to get my hands on that. I'd love to do the training. It's free. Just uh, send me a message. Send me a message at thestorychurchproject.com or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let me know, hey, I heard your episode. I heard about this R3 network thing. Um, I'd love to check out the training school and I would be more than happy to give you the password and the link so that you can um, get in there and, and, and check it out. Now, before we dive into this um, this new part in our season on um, missional living, the art of missional living, uh, this se- I do want to cl- clarify this. This season isn't just going to be me sitting in front of the mic. Uh, this is actually just a brief introduction, and then I'm actually going to move into the topic, which is actually a sermon that I've preached at my local church, one of my local churches here in Perth, uh, the church, um, the Jundalup Church. And so this entire series is going to be the sermon series that I've been preaching there. I've taken that content uh, and I've got the audio file and each episode I'm going to be, just do a brief introduction then we'll go into the sermon content. And so what I've been doing at the Jundalup Church is essentially laying out this concept of missional living and training the members on the art of missional living. And the whole series begins first at uh, mostly at the conceptual foundation or at the conceptual level, and then it moves into the practical. So now, you know, people often ask me like, what's the point of doing the conceptual? Just give me the practical, man. Just give me the to-do stuff right now. I'm, I'm tired of the conceptual. I just want to get to it. And believe you me, I can totally understand that angle. The thing is that missional living, um, effective missional living is first and foremost a mindset. And so practical steps won't undo an unhealthy mindset when it comes to cross-cultural engagement. And what I mean by that is if I give you a bunch of practical steps on how to reach your neighbors or how to reach your Buddhist friends or your secular friends, but you still have an unhealthy mindset about those people and about what engaging those people is or looks like or means, or you still have an unhealthy mindset on on um, their worldviews and uh, yeah, like you know how to, how to relate to their worldviews, then all the practical steps aren't going to do you any good. So the first thing we have to do is we have to heal the mindset. And unfortunately, within the Adventist sort of network, within the Adventist world, there's a lot of really unhealthy mindsets when it comes to people who are different from us. And so I got to start at the conceptual, heal the mindset, and then we can move into practical steps. Now, some of you listening to this, you, you know, you, you got a good mindset, you're ready to go. But I have to start at the beginning for those who are coming at this, you know, way further back than you are, so to speak. So, um, so anyways, that's the introduction. And without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into part one, and I'll catch you on the other side. I want to begin a, um, a sermon series today that is going to launch off of one of the main themes that I've been talking about all year. Now, if you guys think back to most of the sermons I've preached this year, most of them have had to do with one of two things. They've either had to do with the context, the world, the chaos that we now inhabit, or they've had to do with mission in that context. And one of the things that I've talked about quite a bit is that with everything that's going on in the world, with things like COVID and the restrictions and all this stuff, the ways in which we typically share the gospel with our communities have changed. Mass big programs, having speakers flying internationally, those types of things. We can't really do them 
right now. And so one of the main things that I've talked about is how what this does is it doesn't mean we get to pause on mission because Jesus is still coming, amen? Amen. And the gospel must still go to the whole world. All it means is that we have to approach sharing the gospel differently. Rather than relying on big programs and international speakers, we each have to occupy our calling as followers of Jesus to be missionaries in our spheres of influence. Ellen White puts it this way. She says, every Christian is born into the family of God, a missionary. So we've talked about that, and I think everyone here kind of like, yeah, we get that. We agree with that. The one thing I haven't done is I haven't been practical, or at least not as practical as I think I need to be. And so over the next few sermons, what I want to do is I actually want to peel back the layers and I want to actually dissect and explore and teach and learn what does it really mean to live on mission? What does that really look like? It's one thing to say it and for the church to say amen. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. What does it look like? How does it function? What does it mean for your life and the craziness and the busyness of your schedule? How can you actually live out the mission God has given us? And so that's what I want to explore here in the next few, the next few sermons that I preach. So if you've got your Bibles, come with me to Acts 17. Because if we're going to talk about how to connect with the people around us, I imagine one of the best places to go is the life of one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived, Paul the Apostle. So come to Acts chapter 17, because we're going to hang out with Paul for a little bit. Now, as you're searching for that, I want to, I want to throw a, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, a, a monkey wrench into the mix. I want to flip the script. I want you guys to use your imaginations with me for a moment here. Because what I want to explore in the life of Paul, in the Bible, in the book of Acts, isn't only relevant because something like COVID happened. It's relevant because it's what God has shared with us. It's what God has revealed to us. So use your imaginations with me. Imagine COVID never happened. Never happened. Life was normal today as it had been in previous years. And imagine in 2020, our church was actually able to do the evangelistic campaign that we had originally planned to do. Some of you would remember that. We had plans to do this evangelistic campaign alongside the Harvest 2020 thing that was happening around Perth. So imagine that we were able to do it. Now, I want you, using your brilliant imaginations, to imagine that we baptized at that evangelistic campaign a thousand people. Wow. So now... There's a 1,000 people at church on the week. We'd have to get a new building, obviously. Wouldn't be able to fit them here. Now, imagine that next year we said, which is this year, actually, let's do that again. And we baptized another 1,000. Now there's 2,000 people who are members of the June Deluxe Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
And so we did it again, and we baptized another 2,000. Oh, my goodness, 4,000 people. We can't fit them. There's no building in Jundalup big enough. Okay, let's have two separate services on Sabbath. We have a morning service, 2,000 people come. We have a lunchtime service, another 2,000 people come. And then in the following year, we baptized another 2,000. The 6,000 people. And that e- we would have to have an evening service. You know, 2,000 in the morning, 2,000 at lunch, 2,000 in the evening. So many people. We would be the Jundalup SDA megachurch. Now, here's what would happen. The word would spread. The Jundalup Seventh-day Adventist church is the most successful Seventh-day Adventist church in all of Australia. 6,000 members. They would send pastors from all over the world to the Jundalup Seventh-day Adventist Church to find out, what are you guys doing? Let's train all the pastors. Let's teach all the pastors. What's going? We would be, in human terms, a wildly successful church, 6,000 members. But here's the shocking part. If we had 6,000 people attending here every weekend, that's not even 5% of Joondalup's population. Not even 5%. There are over 160,000 people in Joondalup. And I believe God wants to reach all of them. And if we were successful and we reached every person in Jundalup, where would we fit them? I did some calculations. We would need three perf stadiums in Jundalup to fit that many people. And then you would have to upgrade the entire infrastructure of Jundalup because the city wouldn't be able to handle the traffic. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all of it. Because when you really sit down and realize that God wants to reach everyone, you rapidly realize that whatever God's plan is, it cannot revolve around buildings. It cannot revolve around programs. It cannot revolve around events. It cannot revolve around special people coming in from overseas, preaching special sermons. Whatever God's plan is, is so much bigger than that. That if we're really serious about reaching our city, we have to go back to the Bible and find, how does God plan on doing that? Because even if we did our best, we wouldn't even scratch the surface. So come with me to Acts 17. You should be in Acts 17 now, verse 16. I'm going to launch from there. And again, remember, this is part one of a sermon series. So I'm going to lay the foundation today. And then over the next few weeks... As we come back to the life of Paul and Paul's missionary journeys, I want to extrapolate from Paul's experience practical things that I believe God is calling us to do in order to reach our city. Practical things that all of us can do in order to reach our city. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Speak to our hearts, challenge us, inspire us. Give us the missionary heart that you have, that heart that beats for others, that heart that loves humanity, that heart that
is so passionate for each and every one of us that you were willing to give everything in order to redeem us. Reproduce that same heart in each and every one of us. And as we learn from the life of Paul, practical ways in which we can engage the world around us, I pray that we would see your spirit at work in Jundalup City. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I'm reading the text. It says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. Let's pause there. Paul is in the middle of one of his many missionary journeys. He has just arrived at Athens because he had just been at Thessalonica where the religious leaders were persecuting him. And he managed to slip away. Man, I'm telling you, someone needs to make a good movie out of the life of Paul. There's so much adventure. He slips away like a, like a secret service agent. And he finds himself in the Greek city of Athens. And the text says he's waiting for them. The people that he's waiting for are his friends Silas and Timothy. They did ministry together. He's waiting for them in Athens. They had stayed back as he escaped the city where he was being persecuted. And so he's waiting for his friends to arrive. And while he's there... He begins to wander around, and he's observing, and he's taking in the city, and he's taking in its culture, and he's taking in the worldview of the people that surround him here in the city of Athens. And as he does so, the text says that his spirit, his emotions are provoked because of the idolatry in the city. Now, the Greek word used for provoked here is paroxino, which is the same word used to describe when someone has a sword and they're sharpening it with a stone. You can, you can hear that sound in your mind. It's just whoosh, 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 over and over and over and over until it gets to the point where you're like, can you stop? It's annoying. Paroxino. I'm sure you can think of things in your life that really irritate you. Pet peeves. I, I can't stand slow drivers. Ah. I mean, you're doing the speed limit. That's, that's, that's all right. But some people, it's just, why? Why? Why are you, you know, boof? So there's certain things that just kind of really get under your skin and, you know, ah. Paul is walking through the city of Athens, and it's, he experiences paroxino. It's like there's a guy grinding a sword with a stone, sharpening it. Everywhere he turns, idle, idle, idle. And he's just irritated. He's just, what is going on here? And you have to understand as well, it, it, for many of us who don't come from idolatrous society, we tend to think of idol as nothing more than there's a piece of stone that you worship. 
But at least in ancient culture, in, in, in Paul's time and going back into the Old Testament, idolatry is always synonymous with social and systemic injustice. Whenever there's idolatry, there's someone who's suffering. So Paul is seeing this. He's seeing all these idols everywhere. He's just, ah, he's getting irked. He's getting under his skin. It begins to vex and grind on him. But now notice what happens next. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 just kind of skips. Almost as if, if you were reading a comic book, it would be like a black page and, you know, a few days later or something, you know, or watching a movie. It would just, it skips from verse 16 to verse 17. And all of a sudden, we find Paul in verse 17. It says this, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Don't miss what happens between verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16, Paul is vexed by the deep-rooted idolatry in the city. Verse 17, Paul is reasoning. Notice this. He's not attacking. He's not arguing. He's reasoning with people. In other words, Paul doesn't begin to attack the idolatry of Athens. He doesn't publish a blog exposing and shaming Athenian idolatry. He doesn't film a DVD series on how satanic the Athenians are and then distributes it to the churches for $9.99 a set. Instead, he does two other things. Number one, he goes to the local synagogue. He reasons with the God-fearing people who are there. And number two, he goes to the marketplace and he reasons with the locals. Now, this is important because Paul is reasoning with people, but he does so in two separate places. The synagogue where the church members, you could say metaphorically, are present, and the marketplace, where the non-churchy people are present. In other words, Paul sees the idolatry in Athens. He knows they need to hear the gospel, and he knows, I will never reach the city of Athens if I only hang out with churchy people, I have to go to the marketplace. All the idolaters are there buying food for their idols, buying clothes and incense for their idol worship. The merchants are there selling the idols and the idol accessories. And that's where Paul went because he knew Preaching to the God-fearing isn't enough. I have to go to the marketplace where the people are. Lesson number one that we learn from Paul as a missionary, if we want to reach our city, we will never do it while hanging out in here. If we don't get into the marketplace, into the spaces where people are, we will never reach our city. Now listen, I'm not talking about church growth. It might actually surprise you that I'm not actually all that into the church growth conversation. And the reason why is because when I read the book of Acts, whenever it talks about church growth, you know what it says? It says, and the Lord added daily. 
It doesn't say, and the pastor added, and the board added, and the evangelist added, and the strategy. It says the Lord added. So I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is allowing God to do the addition because that's his business, but then being obedient to what he's actually asked me to do. My business is to be obedient to him. And guess what? He commanded us to go and make disciples. So this, what this means, logically, is that we need to go and make disciples. And you don't go and make disciples while hanging out in here. You go and make disciples by going to where the people are, the marketplace, and reaching them where they are. Now, this raises a bunch of questions. What is the marketplace today? How do I connect with people effectively there? What if I'm an introvert? You know, there's lots of practical questions that emerge from this that we're going to explore in the next few sermons. I'm just laying the foundation today. And then in the next few sermons, we'll expand and add some really cool practical ideas to that. But point number one that we learn from Paul if we want to reach our city, we will never do it while hanging out in here. You got to leave the building. You got to go where the people are. But there's a second lesson we learned from Paul that I want to explore today. See, once again, Paul is vexed at the idolatry that surrounds him. But his irritation has morphed into relational engagements. I want you to follow me here because this is really important. His irritation has morphed into relational engagement. In other words, Paul doesn't simply get upset at all the idolatry. He channels that emotion into something positive and redemptive. So rather than just walking around angry, talking about the Athenian idolatry, Paul uses that emotion to begin and engage and connect with people. Now, that sounds like common sense, you guys. It sounds like, hey, that, that's a good idea. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, I don't know. But the truth is, in my years as a Christian, I've observed the exact opposite happening in the church. It usually goes like this. We gather together among ourselves. And we talk about how provoked we are by the evils of the culture that surround us. Then we go home and come back the next week and complain about how provoked we are at the evils of the culture that surrounds us. Then we go home and come back next week with a YouTube link on how evil the culture is that we share with everyone around us. Then we invite the guy from the YouTube link to come to our church and tell us how bad everyone is out there. And we become intoxicated with exposing and condemning how bad the culture is until the new link comes out. Or the new DVD comes out, and we do it all over again. We're good at being provoked by the world, but how many of us channel that provocation in a positive direction? How many of us use that provocation to engage people relationally? How many of us put the DVD titled Idols of Athens Exposed down long enough to walk out our front door and begin to engage the Athenians that surround us? I know the answer because I've been a pastor for a little while, and before that I was an elder, and before that I was an itinerant preacher. And the answer is barely any of us do what Paul did. We're good at getting triggered and irritated by what the culture is doing. 
but very few do anything positive with that. We just keep feeding ourselves more and more anti-culture ideas until everything and everyone is so evil that we lose our capacity to engage meaningfully with the people who surround us, people who are different from us. A few years ago, I spoke with a lady at a potluck who told me how much she hated Muslims. So I asked her, how many Muslim friends do you have? None. How many Muslim friends have you ever had? None. So then why, why, why in the world do you hate Muslims? What, what, what? Explain it to me. Long story short, the poor lady spent all her time on YouTube watching videos that Joe Schmo in his basement made about Muslims, and now she hated Muslims. She'd never met one. She'd never spoken to one, but she was terrified of them. I said to her, I got a lot of Muslim friends. I can name them for I'm not going to do it now because, you know, it's not the point. But, you know, I've got a lot of them. I talk with them. We, I talk about the Bible. They talk about the, their, their beliefs. You know, we, we share with each other. We eat together. It's, I'm not scared of them. Maybe you should go meet one. I never saw her again, so I don't know if she ever did. But here's the thing. She was good at being provoked by the false teachings of Islam. I can agree there are, there are false teachings in Islam, but she never used that emotion to drive her into a relationship with the people of Islam in which she could reason with them. And so her provocation morphed into condemnation. But for Paul, his provocation morphed into mission. That's the distinction here. And it's the second lesson that we learn from Paul. It's this. Don't let your provocation morph into condemnation. Let it morph into mission. I love how the Bible depicts this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we need to quote verse 17 a little bit more. For he did not send his son to the world to condemn the world but to save the world. Paul, driven by a missionary heart, sees the idolatry in Athens. He goes to the synagogue. He reasons with the God-fearing people there, but he knows this isn't enough. And so he goes to the marketplace where all the people are, and he begins to reason, to share, to discuss, to engage, and to lift up Jesus. Now check out verse 18. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we'll talk about them in a little bit more detail in the next sermon. I'll explain for those of you who don't know who they are and, and what they believed. We'll go into that. But this is what happens. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. I love that word, they're conversing. There wasn't arguing going on. They were conversing with him. And... Some were saying, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? And others were saying, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Now notice this. Don't miss what's happening here. Paul is the talk of the town. Everyone's talking about Paul. 
the Epicureans, the Stoics, the people of the marketplace. They think he's weird, yes, but they're talking about him. He's got their attention, and he would never have gotten their attention if he was just hanging out in the synagogue. Why? Because Epicureans and Stoic philosophers didn't go to synagogues. He would never have gotten their attention if he was at the marketplace just yelling at everyone. They would have written him off. But the text says he's conversing with them. Conversation is respectful. Conversation is humble. He's conversing with them. He went where they were. He got their attention. And now the influencers of the city are curious. So notice what happens in verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Arapah. Let me repronounce that again. Arapah is saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Here's the third lesson we learned from Paul about reaching our cities. When we leave our comfort zones and engage people respectfully where they are, the Spirit of God gets to work. See, there was a culture in Athens. A lot of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and there were other philosophers of different schools, they would gather every day and they would just talk about whatever new idea there was floating around. In fact, the text goes on to explain that. So Paul, something about what he's saying, they're like, we, this is strange. We haven't heard this before. But you know what? Come to our meeting. We want to know what these things mean. That's the Spirit of God at work. Spirit of God at work. And what God is showing us through Paul is that when we partner with him by doing what he commands, his spirit is already at work in the city around us. Our job is to partner with him by doing what he commands, and he never commanded us to be comfortable. He never commanded us to hide behind a wall. He commanded us to go and make disciples. Why? Because the truth is, God is already in the city of Jundalup reaching people. Long before we turn up, God is already active. God is already engaged. His spirit is already moving. And what he's saying to his people is, if you partner with me, if you engage people the way that I'm calling you to engage them, we can do this together. As I'm reaching them, I can bring them to you. You can connect together. You can build relationships. And this is why the book of Acts says over and over again, and the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. But what does that look like really? I've given a few examples today brief overviews, and over the next few weeks, I'm going to go further into the story, because the story is not over. There's, there's more. I'm going to go further into the story. We're going to dissect everything that Paul says and the lessons that he teaches us on how to engage with people. And I promise you that by the time we're done, you will have every tool in your possession 
to be able to engage with anyone. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. It doesn't matter if you know your Bible better than Doug Batchelor or you don't know your Bible at all. It doesn't matter. When you follow God's blueprint, each of us can build meaningful relationships and connections that lift up Jesus in the city around us. But for now, I want to invite you to ponder three foundational lessons that we learned from Paul in Athens. Let me summarize them here. And when we get together again in a couple of weeks, we will dig deeper. Number one, if we want to reach our city, we will never do it while hanging out in here. We have to get out there. What does that look like? How do we do that? We'll talk about that. Number two, don't let your provocation at the evils of our world morph into condemnation. Let it morph into mission. The thing that makes the difference is love. You love people. Rather than condemning, you reach out. And number three, when we leave our comfort zones and engage people respectfully, the Spirit of God gets to work. The truth is, He's already at work, and we can partner with him. How would you like an Adventist Bible study set designed for millennials, postmoderns, and unchurched seekers? The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture is a -a one-of-a-kind Bible study set that I've designed to communicate the story of redemption to unchurched generations. With 30 chapters in total, you'll get to discover the gospel, prophecy, and even end-time events in a fresh, meaningful, and relevant way. To learn more about this and get your own copy, head over to thestorychurchproject.com.